Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Welcome to the latest Cal Podcast, hosted by me, Professor Lloyd Clark. In this edition, my guests are leadership development experts and our authors, Tim McEwen and Roderick Yap. Tim is a former British Army officer who was commissioned into the Scots Guards and eventually became an instructor at Sandhurst. Since leaving the Army, Tim has enjoyed a distinguished career as a leadership advisor, mentor and coach, working in the business sector and in 2015 was appointed as a fellow at the University of Cambridge's Judge Business School. He's currently Managing Director of Sheffield Haworth Leadership. Roderick Yap is a former Royal Marines officer who served on operational tours around the world, including Afghanistan and Libya. As a civilian, he founded the Leadership Forces in 2015 and specialises in developing leaders operating in highly demanding and competitive sectors in the commercial and sports areas. He's also in great demand as a lecturer, be that to business, the armed forces, or indeed to my own university postgraduates. Both gentlemen have been firm friends of the cow since its establishment, and therefore it's a particular pleasure to chat with Tim and Rod today on this podcast, which is largely about their new book titled The Balanced Leader, but I'm sure we'll branch out into their ideas more generally about leaders and leadership development. So Tim, Rod, thanks for joining me today and many congratulations on the publication of your new book. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. I raced through the book. I found it really useful um, and very much reading it as somebody who was thinking how useful might it be to friends and colleagues in the British Army. And I, I really do think that it would help anyone at any stage in their careers. It's, it's got great clarity it's not faddy it's very precise and it's packed full of really interesting real life illustrations and I think that the whole uh, genre really um, could do with that sort of a book so really to a first question there are so many books published about leadership every year in the UK could you tell me something, Tim, about what motivated you to write the book and perhaps something about its concept? Sure. Well, and first of all, thank you very much for, for taking the time to read the book. I'm delighted that you, um, that you found it useful and, and accessible. That's um, very good of you to, to say. Uh, look, I, th- I think you know, you're right. There are loads of leadership books out there. You know, they're constantly being, being churned out. And, and, and that sounds perhaps disparaging. I don't mean it that way, but there are just lots of them. Um, and maybe it's the fact that leadership potentially is quite complex. At least for, you know, people want to get their head around it. Um, and, um, and it's not something that you do an undergrad in. It's something that you learn life's experiences through. Um, but I first, you know, had this thought about being in balance actually here at Sandhurst. Um, when we were on final exercise when I was a cadet, I mean, this is a while ago, and I remember us being in Cyprus, and it was my turn to be in a command appointment. I was the platoon commander. And uh, I remember, and there's a, there's a little schematic in the front of the book that, that talks about where I put all my various sections. And there was a moment in time when I suddenly thought, Do you know what, this, I'm in the right place. I'm in the right place with my people deployed in the right place, all knowing what they're going to do. And for this moment in time, I'm absolutely in balance. But of course, it is only a fleeting moment because everything then moves 
and there you've got to rebalance yourself. Um, and so I thought, you know what, there's, there's something in this notion of, of always being balanced. Um, and, and then when I went into the commercial world and started talking to groups, people often ask the question, so you know, what's the answer? And of course, the answer is always, it depends. Um, it depends on your context. It depends on your environment. It depends on what you had for breakfast in the morning or whatever. It depends on a whole raft of things. And you've got to make a judgment based on that context. And, and I, therefore, I think when Rod and I got our heads together, we thought, actually, do you know what? We're very aligned in our thinking. Um, and we want to try to help people understand that it's, there isn't an answer. It's, it's a balance. And only you can make that. Would that be fair, Rod? Yeah, so I think I had a bit of reaction to a lot of the stuff that was being shared on social media, which said leadership is about doing this. So leadership is all about empowering people. And I remember we having a conversation about that and going, well, if it's all about empowering people, why, why do you have command and control? And where is the situation where command and control works and empowerment doesn't work? And I think the, the example most people will understand is if, if I walk across the road in London and I'm walking with a sort of group of civilians and I see someone get hit by a car, it's not a very helpful thing for me to turn around to them and go, so what do you guys think we should do in this situation? Do you think we should call the police or should we call the ambulance or, or what? I mean, technically I'm empowering them, but that's a really unhelpful thing to do given the context. So what we started to have a conversation was is, uh, what we started to have a conversation about was that it's not about sort of if you do X, you'll get Y. It was more about thinking about the context. What is the situation I'm facing? How do I naturally choose to behave? Do I tend to be more of a sort of controlling leader, which I definitely am? And how do I need to behave in the sort of circumstances that I'm faced with? So for example, if I'm taking a group of recruits or cadets through training, you might have to tell them what to do. You might have to be quite directive initially. But as you go through training, that direction starts to ease off and then it starts to become more a conversation about, well, what do you think you should do? You're going to have to make these decisions in the future. So I'm going to ask you, what do you think we should do? And we're going to talk about it. And so gradually I'm empowering them. But that context is changing as the cadets going through Sandhurst would change and grow and adapt. And so we tried to get away from this leadership being kind of simplified to the point of not really kind of meaning anything and getting people to identify that it's about the context and it's about choosing a way of behaving so that you get the best outcome for the situation that you find yourselves in. So I'm sure many of the words that both yourself and, and Tim have just uttered there, context, judgment, environment, balance, are words that all leaders conjure with every day. I'm, I'm interested in perhaps how your military experiences, Tim, informed this book. I mean, um, did you find that from Sandhurst and then your subsequent experience led you to think quite deeply about leadership? Or was it just something that you, you did? I just wonder how this book is informed by your own experience. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because I, I, I think actually, if, if I'm honest, I probably started at Sandhurst as a cadet, not thinking that deeply about it and just cracking on through the 14 week long terms and, and you know, getting through the training program. And then it's, Probably not until you get into the real world of actually looking after troops um, that you start to understand the context that all everything that, that's talked about at Santos, which could arguably be described as a bit of a bubble, because until you actually go in, into the field army and you start meeting troops, 
um, that's where the rubber hits the road and, and it stole starts to, the jigsaw starts to come come together um, but yeah I, I think um, it, it probably did start here but then my last job in the army was back here again on the staff and one of my jobs was uh, as the platoon commander of Lucknow platoon which is the uh, the rehab platoon um, and of course there I was given pretty free reign to, to, to continue the development of the cadets who were injured, whilst also making sure that they had the medical support to ensure they got back on the programme as quickly as possible. Um, but we wanted to make sure they didn't have any skill fade. But in that, in, in that scenario, I was given quite free reign to help get them to understand certain military concepts. And it was the mission command piece for me that was the big one. Um, because actually, mission command is just this. It's about understanding your context, understanding your boundaries, and then making a decision. Um, and that is really transferable into the commercial world. I think sometimes people overcomplicate it by trying to explain the whole mission command thing to and military doctrine to a commercial audience who just don't get it. But in simple terms, you're simply saying to people, your job as a leader is to make a decision. You've got a number of factors that you need to consider in that decision. And importantly, you've got to understand your context. And if you can do that, if you understand those, crack on and make a decision. The, the difficulty, I think, for, for leaders in the commercial world is they, um, they understand that and go, okay, well, so I've explained to my people what they need and I'm now letting them make a decision. And then they jump straight back in again and start meddling with the decision. Maybe that's not unique to the, to the commercial world, I don't know. But um, actually what people are saying is get out of the way and let, me, and let me get on with what it is that you've asked me to get on with. And that's empowerment, really, isn't it? Um, but uh, yeah, the mini my military experience definitely informed this. It was quite formative, I guess, maybe maybe for you as well, Rod. I mean, it was it was the foundation, I guess, of our career. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you start off being sort of taught a little bit about it, and then you sort of realise how it it touches everything, it has a huge impact on the people that are working for you. Um, and so you get introduced to concepts like servant leadership, which I think is a is a great way of kind of thinking about it. I think the trick for leaders in the commercial world is that they are trying to work out how best to generate discretionary effort. And discretionary effort is ultimately about how hard do I choose to work for an individual. And ultimately that comes down to the strength of the relationship, whether you think this individual is leading you in, a, in the right direction, whether they're going to kind of look after you. And I've seen organizations uh, in the commercial world where incredible leaders have changed roles, changed organizations. All of the best people have followed them. And I think to me, that's that's really what the trick is. If you can get people who are just like, look, I don't care what the job is. I'll, I'll come and work for you anywhere because it's going to be great. I'm going to enjoy it. Like the value that you bring to an organization is, is enormous, absolutely huge. And so that's the area that I wanted to help people get better at. And that's ultimately what we've, we've chosen to do professionally. I think, I think if I may just sort of, uh, I think there's something there when I left the army, and I've been out of the army longer than I was in the army now, so, um, but I, um, I, I, I left thinking, you know, the army's pretty damn good at leadership, yeah, and uh, this is what the, lead, the army's all about. And then went into the commercial world and sort of went, wow, there's some really good people out here as well. <laughs> and I think that's something worth remembering is that the, 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 the world of leadership is really, really broad. Um, and there's some really good, really great leaders out there in, in all walks of life. Um, be it business, charity, governments, whatever it might be, as well as, well as the military. It's great that this place 
is the sort of the the the, the starting ground the, the 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 yes the starting ground for for that leadership in an army context but there's some really brilliant examples out there just before we started recording we were talking about um, the business community and their perceptions of military leadership um, perhaps not always being as deep and as positive as perhaps we might like and recognize in reality did you find either of you that when you were starting in the commercial sector there was a certain amount of perhaps prejudice against military leadership that you had to overcome or did you find that in fact that's more apparent than real and you could actually just get stuck into leadership in your own way I think there were some assumptions that you had to we had to certainly overcome that leadership is all about telling people what to do and it's very much a kind of command and control I think most people you know unless they've experienced the military most people's understanding of leadership is somewhere akin to you know so <laughs> apocalypse now or full metal or full metal jacket or saving private Ryan this sort of very directive sort of way of leading people um and it's not like that all the time. There are times when it is like that, but it's sort of not like that all of the time. Um, and that's just a that's just a sort of development journey that that you need to take people on, really. I, I completely agree. And and I was going to say the Hollywood thing. You know, Hollywood has has not done military leadership, broad military leadership, necessarily any favors, um, uh, because you know it, it it has stereotype things. So I found myself having to. Well, you know, back to the title of the book, balance my approach to, 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 to this. There will be certain audiences who absolutely want it and want to hear the story. There are others like, don't, don't even go there with, you know, we're really bored of military stories, really bored of sporting stories. You know, what, what, what else is there? So I, I think there was something definitely that I needed to, to balance it. And I think what I realized is that I needed to meet them in their place. I couldn't. So, you know, you know come, come to me, I had to say, well, what does your world look like? And I'll adapt myself to your world. Um, and that was, that's really important, I think, is to, to, to balance yourself. Because you realise when you leave the army, you're going to someone else's world. And our, the, the army world's quite small. The military world's pretty small. We, 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 you know, we've got to go and meet them in their place. So we could do a speech. I, I mean, I could do it at the drop of a hat. Talk to me about you know, leadership, and I'd share my perspective and my views. And there's some value in that, but that's all shaped by my experience and my context. And what we do more in the commercial world is we won't give them the answer. We'll ask them to share some stories about a time when they've delivered their best work or talk to me about an individual who's had the greatest positive impact on your career. And then they share the stories and you pull out the themes and you're like, right, okay, so you know, in, invested in your development, was there for you when things were really tough, made decisions with imperfect information. You start to draw all these themes out and they're the same themes over and over again. But then that's their version of what good leadership looks like. And so you play that back to them and say, well, this is, this is your version here. This is, a, this is a good starting point for a sort of leadership charter or a set of competency behaviours because you've come up with it, not me. It's not mine. And that was a real sort of, journey i think that yeah. i had to go through that it wasn't about telling people about sharing my kind of war stories or anything like that it's about asking them and, and as soon as you open up that debate to people they they really value it they really value because people are head down charging forth doing business as usual handle turning tasks and just to take half a day out to come and sort of think about this sort of stuff that they don't often think about 
is so valuable and people really, yeah, they, they really value it. But I was also thinking, um, Lloyd, you'll recall at a Cal conference, one of the very first Cal conferences, we had a panel discussion and one of the panelists was uh, the chief executive of a charity in London. The Hanbury Project. That's it. Yep. Well, well remember, I was struggling for the, for, the, <laughs> for, the, for, the, for, the na- for the name. And he asked a question of General John Lorimer, who was also on the panel. And the question was, you know, what space is there for love in army leadership? And this, I think, kind of through the, the discussion, it was a really positive throw. It was a really great question to ask. But I'm willing to bet that not many commercial leaders talk about love in, in the context of, of leadership. And certainly very few military leaders will talk about love. It was a great debate. Yeah, and it's worth actually looking on the Cal website for, for that um, panel discussion because General Lorimer did pause. So that's not a question I've been asked before, and I've been asked many questions about leadership. But then it gave a really good answer did. and was that's very right. honest. Yeah, um, that's right. Saying that it was a very important part. Yes, but we just We're don't not, talk about it. Not articulated. It. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. So I'd like to dig a little bit more into the book now and about um, balance. Um, you, you write in the book, balanced leadership is situational depending on the needs of the organisation and the individuals within it at a particular moment in time. Now, that absolutely resonated with me and I think colleagues in the Calland uh, services folk. I wonder whether you could provide um, some more detail um, about the challenge of achieving leadership balance in certain situations. Is there anything that sort of comes to mind? There are many examples in the book, but what is the challenge there? Um, so I can share an example from my first job when I left the Marines. I went and worked at a company called Urenco, who enrich uranium for the nuclear fuel market. Uh, so heavily technical nuclear manufacturing based up in Cheshire. And one of the things that the managing director, a chap called Simon Bowen, did was reset the relationship with the regulator because the relationship was characterized by a sort of lack of trust. And I think historically the organization had been very good at like, we should hide everything, you know, sweep everything under the mat. Um, and one of the things that, that he did was, was reset that balance by saying, look, the best way to win trust is to go to them with your homework and say, look, these are all the things that are wrong with the site. This is everything that's broken and isn't working as it should but we're working on these things. Almost this sort of, you know, um, just complete confessional. Because it's very hard to tell someone off when they're like, well, you haven't caught me for anything. I've told you all of this stuff up front. I've put in a plan to address it, and I'm addressing that. And I, to me, that was a really good example of like, you know, how do you identify a, a sort of key stakeholder, someone like the regulator in the nuclear industry, which is obvious. Um, and then how do you, how do you reset that relationship and sort of bring it back to a position whereby you can trust each other? I thought that was a good example. Yeah, and actually interesting, you mentioned the regulator. Um, I, I was thinking, I, I do a great deal of work in various financial financial services organisations and, and clearly they're highly regulated. And I was thinking about when things start getting tough. So leadership's, leadership's easy when everything's just plain sailing. When everything's working really, really well, um, you don't have any dramas, you haven't got any problems going on, then, then it should, should just be running on rails. <clears throat> should be. Um, it's when something happens, it, well, the pandemic, 
um, clearly was a, was a massive test of it. Um, where you have some sort of regulatory problem, be it you know, nuclear fuels or, or financial services, or you try to merge things. This is where everything starts to become out of, get a little bit bent out of shape, out of balance. Um, and this is where leadership teams ideally would just take a bit of a pause, take a bit of that sort of Hamlet moment and say, okay, I think we're a bit out of whack here, a bit out of balance here. How do we regain that balance? And that's not by going back to the way you were before. It's saying the context has changed. So what does our leadership response need to be in the environment that we find ourselves in right now? You know, we've just had a section 166 from the Financial Conduct Authority. Well, do we all run around like headless chickens or do we actually just take a pause, take a step back and ask ourselves, well, what's gone on and what's our response? So it will always be, it'll always be changing. And then you might then go into the Christmas party and stand up and chief exec wants to say, say a few words. Again, the situation slightly changed. So the context is I'm facing off to all my staff. I now need to put on a different, slightly different head and a slightly different spin to it. So, you know, we, we talk in the book about um, the graphic equaliser, you know, this old 1980s stereo that, that no one else knows exists because I'm far too old. But, um, but just rebalancing yourself, constantly changing the, the settings is really important. Understanding, because there's one size does not fit all. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think I've, um, yeah, it's, it's that changing of context. There are two things there I'd like to sort of dig into again a little bit deeper. Trust, which we'll recognise as an absolute essential, but also that word diversity, because trust seems to me to be at the absolute heart of, of mission command. And also, of course, you explain in the book why diversity is so important, but perhaps we could just talk about how we trust people that are different from ourselves, may look different, sound different, come from different backgrounds. How do we gain trust and what are we looking for when we're trying to trust other people gosh that's a that's a big question there yeah. i think i can i can answer sort of how i how i do it i think it all becomes much easier once you've built a relationship with someone once you've started to identify common ground even if it's things as simple as you know identifying the fact that we're both into a specific sport or we've both got children or something like that and once you can start off from a foundation of what do we have in common you can sort of start to move things forward. And I think initially it's okay if you don't know someone particularly well to give them something sort of relatively small or maintain that kind of leash of, of control, if you like, at a relatively sort of short, short reign. I think that's an entirely, entirely appropriate way of doing it. And then gradually, over a period of time, that leash can get sort of longer and longer and longer till you're like, no, I can completely trust you we've been working together for five maybe six years yeah. now yeah that's right and initially there would have been things that we both would have done as you're sort of working out right how do we work well together how do we approach this problem and now six seven years down the line you can ask me to put together a proposal and it can be something along the lines of remember what we did for those guys yeah it's a bit of that and a bit of that and you know it will be done to a standard but that's because I think we've got a track record of working together. And I think it's okay to sort of gradually build that track record, you know, and, and sort of work from that position upwards. I, I also think it's something about being open-minded to a new relationship. Um, you, you talk about diversity and, you know, it's, it's 
too easy to say, well, I trust them because they look, sound, come from a similar background and, and kind of I understand it. Therefore, I think it's really important to challenge ourselves and say, actually, well, let, let's, let's be open-minded about this because we may well learn something that we were unaware of previously. So there's this open-minded piece. And then also, I often talk about trust in terms of buckets. Yeah, so on, on, on the left of ARC, you've got someone whose natural inclination is to always trust at the start of relationship. So I will trust you at the start of the relationship. Our bucket of trust is full. And maybe, unfortunately, a couple of bit, a bit of water might spill out of it every now and again. But roughly, that's where we are. The other end of the spectrum, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with this, is that you might start the relationship saying, look, the bucket's empty. It's not that I don't fundamentally trust you, but we need to have some sort of relationship experience that will fill this bucket up. Um, and eventually, we'll get to the, the right point of trust between one another. I mean, I have to say, I'm, I tend to start relationships on the left of arc with a bucket full of trust. Others may not, but you've just got to work your way through it and build it up. But you've got to be open to it. You've got to be open to it. If you go into it and say, well, they're from that place and therefore it's going to be like this. Well, do you know what? It probably will end up being like that. And it'll be more because you've created it than they've created it. Sort of self-fulfilling philosophy. And, and maybe this is you know, appropriate for the... The services whenever sort of well that this force does it that way i'm very consciously not naming a force here but this this group people do it this way but this other group people wear a different uniform do it that way how can we ever trust them well you know you've got to open up for it so the thing the thing i think what you say is really interesting there about starting off with a sort of full bucket and assuming trust that's a philosophy that's a sort of that's a view of the world the thing that you have to accept is that from time to time you're going to come across people who are going to let you down. Yeah, you'll be disappointed occasionally. And who might take advantage of that. And and that's okay. So that what you need to be paying attention to are what are the markers and how do I pick up on those kind of early warning signs that someone is in this for themselves. That's it, yeah. And then how do I work out how to kind of walk away or how do I how do I divorce myself from that relationship in some way? I think that's an entirely appropriate way of behaving. And, and you, will, you will have your approach, left of arc or right of arc, depending on all sorts of experiences in one's life. You know, you, you may have had some horrific experiences that are inclined to make you not trust until someone proves otherwise. And that's entirely valid and, you know, it's unfortunate, but, but it is what it is. But, um, yeah, I'd far rather start with an open-minded bucket full of trust. And... It leads me on to ask a question about creativity. I mean, I've read many, many books about um, leader development and leadership, and creativity always seems to me to be rather underplayed, but you really play up creativity in your book, the balance between process and creativity. And I was just wondering whether there is a great, greater tolerance in the commercial world than perhaps in the services. When individuals make mistakes, they're trying to be creative, they're pushing the boundaries. Um, you know, what is the tolerance for mistake making and how can we perhaps become better leaders by embracing mistakes, embracing failure and using that as a launch pad to move on? I think, I think you're gonna, there is so much scope in the world, <laughs> I'm gonna be really broad here, um, to encourage greater creativity which therefore means accepting that there may well be the odd uh, failure the odd bump in the road but you know tech startups do this all the time fail fast yeah learn quick move on fail in a small way and and it's not catastrophic 
Um, and so there's a lot to be learned from that. Uh, unfortunately, I think also, though, when you start scaling up these organizations, the cost of failure it becomes big and executives are quite scared of, of being able to stand in front of their shareholders and say, you know, we mucked up here or whatever it might be. Um, but of course, in a, good, a very good friend of ours called Richard Wilmot, and he has this phrase, or it talks about um, when you try to avoid a certain, the more you try to avoid a certain outcome, the, the, the greater the danger that you actually end up crashing into it. So the, the, the danger of avoiding failure and having to stand up in front of a senior group of people and say, I'm sorry, but we've really screwed up there and it's cost us X million or whatever it might be. Actually, if you'd allowed that failure to happen way much further down the line and it might have only cost you £10,000 and you'd have learned from it, if you'd learned from it, then, then you're going to avoid what's happened, the potential that might happen further down the line. So there's this danger of trying to, uh, in trying to avoid something, you end up creating it inadvertently. I just wish more organisations would be open to that. And I don't think the commercial world is necessarily any more or less open to failure than the military is. Maybe the, maybe the consequences of failure um, in the two environments are different. Yep. Um, but yeah, uh, I, 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 wish I, could, I wish I saw it more. I wish I saw more willingness to, to make mistakes in the commercial world. Well, there's... So we've done a number of things where people have talked about we want to encourage learning from mistakes and almost to an extreme, we want to fail fast. And I'm like, okay, so what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? And we all, everyone sort of looks blankly at each other. And um, having worked in the military and in the nuclear industry, where frankly, you're often dealing with stuff where you really can't afford to make mistakes. I don't think that an open acceptance of mistakes culture is actually really what people want. So... When you're handling firearms, there is a way to unload it. There is a way that unloads it, and it's the correct way that you have been taught, and it's the way where a round doesn't come out of the out, out of the barrel. Um, and so, I think the way I kind of think about it is that there's three buckets that mistakes fall into. There's areas of process, which could be down to the process being inadequate. Someone hasn't followed it, so there's a kind of training issue. But ultimately, process is really what fixes the mistake. Okay. Then there's things that are complex or difficult. So brain surgery is complicated. It's hard. It requires trained people who know what they're doing. And there's a lot of variables that frankly could come down to the movement of a surgeon's hand when they're operating on you, right? So how do we manage that? We teach people and help them understand the consequences and that, that this is a risky thing to do. And I think that the third one that, that people get confused about is this kind of hypothesis testing. So let's give something a go. Let's try it out. But we don't bet the house on something like that. We want to try things out. We want to try with some boundaries. We do this all the time. Let's try this out with a bit of that marketing. Okay, let's put some money behind it. We're not betting 200 grand. We're putting a few hundred pounds and we're going to see if something works. And it's exactly the same if I was teaching my daughter how to drive a car. I wouldn't take her down around the M25. I'd put her out on a parade square and, and I'd create some boundaries so that it's kind of safe to try things out and learn. And I think that drawing a line between errors of process, errors of complexity, and where you want to encourage a creative or space, or not a creative, you want to encourage a safe environment for people to try things out, but putting some really clear boundaries around that, 
I think you want to be making sure that you've got a kind of reasonable balance of the third one. And you're trying to think about as a leader, how can I reduce the process errors? How can I minimize the complexity ones or at least manage the expectations around that? And how can I create a space for people to try things out and learn from them? If you get balance of those three things, you're probably onto a bit of a winner there. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be controversial as well, just to throw something in the mix here. So I, I mentioned before, Rod and I do a, a great deal of work with regulated organizations, um, particularly in the financial services world. And, and I think, my personal opinion, just to be clear, that is that um, in an attempt by the regulator to control stuff and to make sure that 2008 and the global financial crisis and all the rest of it doesn't, doesn't happen again, they, they sort of stifled organizations' willingness to give stuff a go and try new things. Uh, and they've put a huge onus on the individual and saying, right, you know, your head's on the block for this. Um, and if something goes wrong, they'll, you know, somewhere in a, in, a, in a press article or something, they rattle the keys of a jail and go, you could be in the slammer. So you're next on the line okay? you're, 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 um, for whatever it. So that does not encourage people to go, do you know what? Let's try something. It, it really doesn't. Uh, and I, I, I think there's, there is a real reluctance um, to be creative because of risk tolerance is relatively low. I mean, you've both used the word judgment quite a bit in, in this podcast already. And again, it's one of those attributes that I think that we'd all agree is vital for a leader. Um, General George Marshall, the professional head of the US Army during the Second World War, um, was very tolerant of mistakes and of failures in his senior commanders. But the one thing he would sack a senior commander for was chronic poor judgment. I wondered if you could say something about about judgment, about what good judgment or bad judgment looks like and what it consists of, because it's a word that's often used, but rarely do we actually look behind it to see what it consists of. Could you shed any light? Yeah. Um, it's about decision-making, isn't it? And having some... It's a combination of things, I suppose. The technical understanding of a particular situation, be that military, be that commercial, whatever it might be. So having enough technical understanding to be able to make a decision, to have enough experience under your belt to know all the various implications or um, potential courses of action that you might have open to you. So yeah, technical competence, experience, and then confidence to say, well, well my, in my, in the, these, this is what I think is, is, is happening. This is the experience tells me that, that this is where we should go. And you know what? Now I'm going to do it. And, and I can articulate it. I can explain to people why. Uh, so I can rationalize it. And I'm using my judgment, which just comes from all of this thing. Well, the other thing about wisdom, there was an equation. Wisdom is knowledge plus experience equals wisdom. Um, it's, it's very similar. Yeah, that's really useful. So I think, I think judgment yeah, is absolutely about decision making. But I think the added piece to it or the way that you improve it is through reflection. Like what did you want to happen and kind of what actually happened there? That's a great point. That's a great and, point. And I think that's not enough people spend time reflecting on themselves on what worked, on, 
on what could have gone gone better. So I'll share an example. When I started when I started my business in what 2015, there were a couple of times where I got into sort of conversations with typically very charismatic, sort of good sort of salespeople. And a couple of times that we, we sort of entered into sort of partnerships together and we tried some things out. And, and most of the time it didn't work. And I had to ask a couple of people about this, which required me to sort of accept that I was part of the, the problem here. And I sort of said, you know, look, to what extent, to what extent am I, I don't know, making poor judgments about these sort of charismatic, slightly older statesman type men that is causing me to enter these sort of, you know, business relationships where it really isn't sort of working out. Um, and I wondered, I was sort of left wondering, like, was, was it to do with the sort of relationship I had with my father or lack of relationship from, you know, from, from a period in time? Uh, and I don't know if that was true, but I was kind of alive to it, which means that now going forward, I'm sort of aware that, you know, that, that's an area for me or that's something that I need to be sort of aware of. So, for example, if someone is selling me or talking to me about an opportunity, I'm now looking at it with a sort of slightly different perspective. What are they getting out of this? What am I getting out of this? Is there some sort of parity here? Is this really a win-win or is it a win for them uh, being dressed up as a win-win? And I've only got better at that through experience, but that's only, I say experience, that's from reflection. And that's the kind of key thing, looking back and going, Right, what worked, what didn't work? Where did I enter into that with an optimism bias, for example? And I found myself a bit out of pocket or a bit sort of wanting. And, and clearly the um, British Army leadership doctrine talks about a leader knowing oneself, mm. having emotional intelligence, which perhaps leads us on to humility. I know you were talking about confidence, but confidence can become arrogance, can very quickly become something that is far less savoury um, and you have a chapter in the book that looks at the balance between confidence and humility um, could you talk a little bit more about that perhaps giving us some examples of that particular challenge yeah so this was a tricky one for us to sort of get our heads around I think when when things are going wrong or when time is particularly tight you want a leader that takes control and says this is what we are going to do um, and it's the classic kind of military leadership model isn't it in many respects the sort of very decisive very confident in their own views uh, very confident in knowing what they're going to do given the circumstances but again that doesn't work every time a lot of the time certainly in the corporate world you actually have a bit of time to think about it so asking people what do you think how would you approach this situation what would you do if you were in my shoes? If you lack humility, you almost don't have that lever to pull. You can't kind of access that part of you because you believe that leadership is, is about being the confident individual at the front of the organization. And I've seen both used really, really well. And I'll tell you what, if you want to, if you want to deliver an organizational plan, if we're, if, if we're trying to make something happen in an organization, if we're trying to grow it, if we're trying to move things forward, asking people what they would do and then almost cherry picking the best ideas the execution of that plan becomes a hell of a lot easier because people are already bought into it they think it's down to them they think it's largely their plan not your plan and i think if you don't have humility if you're not willing to do that it, it 
you know, you, you can't leverage that. You can't pull that lever. And equally, you can't learn from mistakes because if you don't have humility, well, it's never down to you. It's never your fault, is it? Yeah, I, I th- you think you're absolutely right. It's, it, 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 the um, being prepared to give the credit where the credit is rightly placed um, and, and, and not necessarily take it yourself is, 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 is a big one. Um, and that we, we all know lots of leaders that, that are very happy to, 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 um, to take it all themselves and not, not pass it on. But equally, um, as the leader, you, you carry the can. So the, the, the military analogy here would be, you know, you've got to create some sort of plan. Uh, you get your, your leadership team or your planning team around the table and say, right, we've got a problem here. How are we going to address this problem? You kick it around amongst one another. Um, but then you have to then be able to walk out that room and the leader says, right, it's my plan now. And I'm saying it's my plan, not because my ego is telling me it's my plan, but it's because I'm ultimately responsible for the, the successful execution of the plan. So I've now got to go and stand in front of everybody and say, this is the plan. And I guess that's why you pay the big bucks as the leader. Um, so you've got to be able to have the, 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 the confidence to be able to, to do that. And, and not ignore the fact that... And, that other people have contributed to it. Of course not, you know. And, the, and actually, maybe there's a right, the right time to get someone else up there with you to demonstrate that it has been a proper cabinet-based decision. Um, so you still carry the can, but that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, you've got the you know, ego the, the size of Ben-Hur. It's, it's, um, it's got to be appropriately balanced. Oh, there you go, back to the book. Although there is a really simple rule there, actually, that I found, and I'm yet to see this broken, which is that really good leaders, when things go wrong, they say, that was my fault. That was down to me. I failed to communicate the urgency of this requirement or I failed to manage this through my team. I'm at fault. But when things go right, it's nothing to do with me. That was all my team's work. That was their hard effort. I will pass on their thanks. Bad leaders tend to flip that round. And when things go well, well, that was all about my leadership, you know, and I'm getting the very best out of our people here. And when things go wrong, I'll hold my team to account. I will grip them. I will have a conversation with them. And it's one of the, there are not many really simple rules to leadership, but that's definitely one of them. Yeah, that the very right. best leaders pass on the successes down to the team and hold the mistakes at their sort of level. So we've begun, I suppose, to explore what makes an effective leader and an ineffective leader. We're, we're exploring that sort of spectrum that I really promoters existing rather than just the the good leader the effective leader and the toxic leader as sometimes the literal conversations uh, may lead us to, to believe um it's really difficult i think measuring effectiveness in a leader perhaps easier to to measure ineffectiveness i don't know but what what do you think about that you know what are the measurements of effectiveness when talking about leadership and leaders I, I think in, in relation to the, the whole concept of being a balanced leader, you, you can actually measure. So, so uh, there are lots of psychometrics out there and, and, and um, we, we, have a, we, we have a group at, at, um, at Sheffield Howard that do this uh, whole leadership assessment piece. And they're able to look at an individual and through various tests and interviews and conversations, they're able to make a judgment as to an individual's ability to adapt themselves to different situations. 
And I think that's what we're saying here in, in the book is that actually there's no right or wrong. It's about moving yourself from extremes on each of the various spectrum that we talk about. The effective leader is able to do that. So maybe the measure of effectiveness is actually their, their ability to, to move themselves. It's the ones that are fixed um, in, a, in a particular position that will only be effective when the situation and the context requires mm. that sort of leadership. Yeah. Um, the effective ones can move themselves. And I think you can actually measure that through various psychometric testing and, and uh, in you know, occupational psychology um, assessments. I think you're able to do that. So we spend a lot of time in the book talking about, you know, two ends of the spectrum. I do think it's helpful to sort of say that there are almost some fundamentals that I think people need to to grasp to sort of get their head down, head round, sorry. I think um, good leaders create an environment of clarity. So people know what it is they're meant to be working on. They know what is important. They know what to prioritize. And equally, they know what not to do. We spend a lot of time with leaders saying, right, what are the things that we're going to kill? What is the stuff that we're not going to continue doing because it doesn't add value? So I think clarity is a principle. I think the ability to build strong relationships with people based on mutual respect and trust. I've never seen a good leader who is incapable of building strong relationships with people about generating that kind of discretionary effort. Um, I've never come across that before. So strong leaders can build strong relationships. I think they're decisive, so they're comfortable with making decisions based on imperfect information, and they do that based on a sort of positive intent. They're trying to do the right thing, but they accept that hindsight is twenty twenty. but that doesn't stop them from making decisions. And then I think the last thing is that good leaders are accountable and willing to hold people to account. So there's a conversation around like, I thought we were all clear on the same page that this was gonna happen and it hasn't happened help me to understand why not and culturally the biggest thing that I've realized when I left the military was that if I asked someone in the in the marines to do something they wouldn't go to bed until that thing was done and it was delivered and when I went into the corporate world I signed up to do all kinds of different things and people turned up and told me why they hadn't done them <laughs> and I just realized that the pace at which the organization can move is just very very different because because it's a choice often. And that, that, was a, that was a real sort of, that required a real mindset shift for me. But that accountability, I mean, that's the kind of glue that holds everything together. You know, if an organization has, is filled with people that lack a level of accountability, then it's a bit like a car that's wheel spinning. There's lots of noise, there's lots of, there's, yeah, there's lots of commotion, but, and the wheels are spinning, but frankly, there's no forward momentum because nothing's actually getting done. And I have seen organizations that, that have real accountability problems because their leaders aren't holding people to account. Interesting. So, I mean, you were just talking there about um, change and about uh, the world being fast moving, um, which makes me reflect on what endures in leadership and what changes future leaders. I'm a man of a certain age in my mid-50s, pale, male and stale. You know, what, what are leaders going to look like in 20, 30 years' time? Will we recognise them? Are they going to require different competencies? Or what endures in leaders and in leadership? What is good? What we need them to be? Will, they, will that still be the same, do you think, in 20 or 30 years? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, th I think... The, OK, I mean, this, is a really, this, is a, this is a great question. And um, 
I think there are certain, it's going to be, it's a balance, okay? Um, there's going to be certain things that it will endure um, because ultimately we're still talking about humans and we're still talking about relationships and we're still talking about asking people to do things um, and getting discretionary effort, effort out of them, as you said, Rod. Um, uh, we're still asking people to do that. What I will change will be the medium through which we manage to do that. So technology will have a, a greater part in it. It'll be more uh, dispersed. So we may seldom meet our teams. And this is what we've just experienced over the, uh, over the pandemic was that we weren't meeting people. Um, and so an ability to build a relationship with someone quickly and remotely will be a really important skill in, in the future. And I think this is also why a lot of individuals of a certain generation are so desperate for everyone to come back to the office is because they perhaps only know that that's the one way to build a relationship. Um, I, I think that future generations of leaders will be very comfortable about developing the relationships in, in other ways. Um, so, that, so there's that piece, but, 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 but what will not change will the fact is that you still need to build one and you still need to be able to, to get the best out of people. Um, well, those are some of my thoughts. Rod, you may have some others. I've got some others in my head as well. I need to so, my thoughts. So when I, when I think about historical leadership figures that I, can, I think I can get reasonable access to, I think about people in the, probably the Second World War, Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers. I know I should be telling you books that I've read, but those are the things that sort of spring to mind. And when you think about how they led, would I have followed them? I think I probably would have because fundamentally it was about their character and it was about the way in which they interacted with you. And yes, the mediums for how that works has changed, but fundamentally the way in which someone makes you feel based on how they talk to you and how they treat you hasn't really changed that much. And so I still think, you know, leadership is, is still about behaving in a way that generates the best outcome for you as a leader, the individuals involved and for the organization. And fundamentally, that comes down to you knowing yourself and, and knowing the context that you face. And I don't think that will change. Those are principles on which I would be, I would be willing to bet my, my mortgage on that won't change significantly. I think, I think there's one other thing that I, I think might have a, an impact on leaders of the future. And that is things like the, the, the environment, the, the climate, the environment, the planet, and just how much we have to care for things that are way bigger than ourselves and they will become much larger problems for everyone to have to deal with. And, and I, I wonder, it's not often talked about, but generosity as a leadership trait, I think may well have a, a lot more. I mean, so not just going for bottom line profit or whatever it might be, but actually generosity of spirits. I'd like to think that it's always been a, a leadership competency, but it's not often spoken about in terms of leadership, is it? So I, I wonder if generosity is a, a, leadership con, a leadership idea of the future, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, it seems quite clear to me as somebody that has children who are now in their early 20s that whilst they might share my values and my principles, the weight on which they place on certain principles and values differs to me and they have some things that they value that are completely different to me um, just in terms of what they might value out of a out of a career I might be looking at a 20 to 30 year career because that's the course I was set on but to them they're looking at something that they can add value to 
for two or three years before moving on to doing something else. So perhaps we're looking at bright young people um, just approaching life in a different way, which must yeah. must lead to leadership challenges. I think that's that they behave like that because they can afford to. The context has changed. So my father's advice was always, you know, you get a good government job and stay in that. So he's delighted when I joined the Marines, right? Um, but when I think about how he grew up, he grew up in, in a time when employment was genuinely a problem. Employment scarcity was an issue in the sort of late 70s. Um, and we don't face that now. Like, you know, there are thousands of jobs out there and getting access to them via LinkedIn and things is easier than it ever has been before. So people don't value those kind of long-term things. There are not many young people leaving university or leaving secondary education now who are thinking about their pension. That's just not how they are thinking. So I think the context has changed and, and, and a greater availability of jobs has meant that they are less thinking about... They're not, they're not so much thinking about long-term careers and pensions. They're thinking about collecting a portfolio of experiences and they'll try things out. They're much more experimental. And is that an extra challenge to the army because the army the services grow their own leaders okay we might see some lateral entry you know coming in may already be there in certain services but if you're looking at youngsters who are not looking for a 22-year career but are looking for three or four years getting out i mean that 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 can severely undermine perhaps efficiency and effectiveness because there is that greater turnover perhaps I, it could do. I think it's a it's a challenge for the army. I think it's a challenge for the police. I think you want to, as an organisation, you need to really understand what is it that causes people to leave. You know, is it things like the fact that they are moving all over the place and it's really difficult for them to put their children into one environment so that they get a sort of stable education? Like, what are the sort of pull factors that mean people leave? Because I think... I mean, I, I, I may be sort of talking slightly out of turn, but I don't think that the pension is as good as it used to be. So I don't think, therefore, it is a kind of factor that necessarily sustains people for a really long period of time. The other thing you've got to be cautious about is that that is, a, in, that is in many respects an incentive scheme. So you may want some people to leave, but actually the pension is kind of keeping them in. They may be sort of disengaged at a more senior level, but... Do you know what? If they leave at 18 years and they've got 22 to serve, then frankly, it's a disincentive for them to leave. So I think it's worth kind of thinking about that in sort of more holistic terms and thinking about what are ways in which we can bring people into the fold for a period of time to do a very specific job, maybe, and sort of move on. Mm. How you inculcate them with the sort of value standards and expectations and the language to operate in the military is going to be tricky, but I think it would be worth trying out. Hypothesis yeah. test that. Tim, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, but I mean, quite clearly, I suppose one of the challenges for leaders in the commercial sector is that individuals can just leave and just go to another company for a better package, a better work-life balance or whatever it might be. But have you got any thoughts on how to incentivize individuals or perhaps the leadership challenge that the army might have in ensuring that people stay for longer than they might necessarily want to? Well, well I think careers? I think first of all that the military, as I understand it, has always had a, a, has always had some churn, um, particularly perhaps in the in the officer corps. There are our individuals that have joined, and they join, and they do three years, and they say that's what I've always wanted to do, and I'll go on, and then I'll go mm. and do something else. Um, 
but then there are people that choose to stay on for much longer and 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 so there needs to be some way of keeping them fresh mm-hmm. keeping them engaged um yeah just um, o- opening the doors to doing different things i know you i think you're already thinking a lot about how can we get people to go and do a secondment in industry or whatever it might be um just to get people to have some outside experience to burst the bubble a little bit and bring some new ideas in um but i think there's also something about impact that's what youngsters say youngsters that's ridiculous isn't it but uh, but um but um people want to have impact uh and they want to know that what they're doing has a has a reason has a purpose and it's not all fluffy stuff they actually want to know what is the upside of this happening for our clients our customers our 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 users whatever it might be what's the benefit of us doing this um and they want to, and people are less likely to just go with the flow nowadays they want to know whether or not something good is happening but but equally in the commercial world i would argue that it's actually quite healthy for people to leave um mckinsey i think are i'm probably misquoting them here but they're um they're quite happy for people to leave because they've been mckinsey trained they go out into the big bad world and often they end up becoming great clients of mckinsey and then they may well come back to mckinsey with a whole stack of commercial experience under their belt now as much more wise advisors and consultants in the future so actually i i encourage firms to say look embrace the fact that people might want to go and allow them to go with you know fanfares and and you know good levers and shake them by the hand and and keep in touch with them i i wish organizations were better at running alumni program for their staff because keep in touch with them they're the people who are out there now working with you as clients or whatever it might be find out what they're doing um and then they may well come back so i i think actually we should embrace uh, the opportunity that comes with people moving around i think it's i think it provides great diversity of thoughts great okay so one final question so having written um the balanced leader and i've got my copy here ben all flagged up flagged um, up i was quite impressed with all the flags that you've put <laughs> in it did it change your views about leadership did the the process of trying to create a structure to look at where balance exists to look at skills to look at individuals and illustrations did it did it change the way that you think about leadership at all and if so in what way or or indeed did it just confirm everything indeed for me i think it it was really enjoyable writing because it 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 asked it got us to challenge our own thinking a little bit mm. um did the was the outcome that we fun i i and i'm speaking for myself here rod i fundamentally changed how i view it no if anything it reinforced the fact that I quite like the fact that there are no answers to leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh there are there are discussions and debates. Um but I like the fact that 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 that's the way it is. That's kind of how I operate, I guess. I enjoy creating debate with people, amongst people I like, you know, kicking things to around what with one another. Um so no, it just I think it reinforced what we believed and um yeah, and it was a, a thoroughly enjoyable process. It was quite a long process, but it was thoroughly <laughs> enjoyable. Yeah, it was. I think it refined it a lot. Uh you know, I think there's, you know, if you think about sort of university education, you know, what is the purpose of writing an essay? It's it's to put together a structure to your thoughts. And I think that process of 
putting together the structure and going, right, well, how would I talk about this? Explaining it over and over again to sort of different people helps you kind of refine it. Um, it's a little bit like a sort of sales pitch. You know, the first few times you do it, it's probably a bit rubbish. By about the sixth or the seventh time, you start to get into a sort of patter for how you do it, and it kind of improves it. Um, so for me, it was very much a refining process. I think what it's also done for me is it's... Um, I now look at everything and I see balance kind of everywhere. It's, prob- it's probably... Uh, or Im- imbalance, perhaps. Uh, I-, I see it a great deal. Um, so maybe there's another one. Maybe there's another. Maybe there's another book in the offering that balanced something else, um, because it's everywhere, really. Yeah. Well, I think I think for me, what I'm still trying to do is, if a model stands te- if the model can stand the test of time, you should be able to. You should be comfortable kind of challenging it and looking at it and going, well, it wouldn't work in this sort of situation here. And I don't think I've found one yet, or I haven't found a kind of spectrum that I think. God, we missed a chapter there. There have been a couple of times I've sort of thought about it. But generally speaking, we're giving people a, a sort of framework. We're not telling people what to do. I think that was really important to that's, us. That's really important Give to people us. a framework to think about and invite them to think about their context and the situations they face and the challenges and their kind of stakeholders and their workforce and all of the other sort of things that they have going on and invite them to sort of think about how this can be helpful in that context. That was really what we were sort of trying to do. And I think you've done that extremely well um, because you've lifted the lid on some common leader leadership challenges, but you've also illustrated them from such a broad, broad spectrum of environments and contexts that I think um, folk that are both in the army and not will really gain advantage from. And what it tells me to seasoned leaders yourselves is that through writing this book, you are still developing. You are still learning. Absolutely. And that's something that I think we should encourage everyone listening to this podcast to do. Continue to read, continue to learn, continue to learn from others, continue to learn from your mistakes. So, Roderick, Yap, Tim McEwen, thank you very much for spending time with me today in discussing The Balanced Leader. It comes highly recommended. And for those listening, if you're running a leadership study day, you're seeking to lift the lid, as I said, on leadership challenges, how to overcome them, you simply want to improve yourself, become a better leader, this is most definitely the book for you. So thank you for listening to this Cal podcast from Tim McEwen, Roderick Yap, and myself, Lloyd Clark. Goodbye. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website and of course follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.